Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live. I'm your host, Tony Duty, and I'm pleased to be joining you from my professional home at University of Delaware. We broadcast on the Higher Ed Live Network, and you can tune in to Student Affairs Live Wednesdays at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. In a moment, I'll introduce you to our guest, but we can't do that without first giving a shout out to the sponsor that makes Student Affairs Live possible. Hired Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. And for those of you listening in from your office or home, I hope you'll join us on Twitter and tweet to us your best questions and we'll try and incorporate them into today's conversation. And, and now I am excited to introduce you to our, our guests today who happen to be the authors of this excellent book. Um, that I hope, if you haven't gotten, that you will uh, order your copy now. Um, and I'd last, like you to each start off by describing your current role and why this, well, who you are first, your current <laughs> role, and why this topic was of interest to you. Bridget, let's start off with you. Okay, great. Thank you, Tony. So I'm Bridget Turner Kelly. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland in the Student Affairs Concentration, and I have been teaching and researching and visual methods um, for quite some time and have been just lacking and looking for scholarship and looking for resources on it. And then recently, or before we did this project, people would come to me, doctoral students or master's students or colleagues, looking for something on visual methods, either in their teaching or research or practice. And so it was just fortuitous that I found um, Carrie and that we collaborated with the authors in this book Fantastic. All right, Carrie. Well, welcome. Um, my name is Carrie Cordegas. I'm an assistant professor at Northern Illinois University in our adult and higher education program. Um, I came to the work during my um, doctoral program and became really interested in the use of visuals and visual methods in uh, research in in and then in pedagogy um, and the possibilities for for. Um, use of creativity and other modalities when we think about um, um, understanding or gaining information about a particular topic. Um, and, and that led to my dissertation, which was about short-term study abroad. And um, during, during my data collection, I allowed students to either participate in a photo voice style a modified um, style interview where they shared photographs of their everyday experiences um, during their study abroad experience um, in Spain, in Valencia. And uh, other students chose to do a more traditional type of interview and, and the comparing them while they were on similar topics of everyday experiences, navigating being and living and studying in a new country, um, the the interviews with the photos were so much more rich because they had specific experiences to draw upon and they had thought about what, which photo to bring and why and how. And, and so that sort of led me into thinking about and expanding my interest around um, the use of, of uh, visual methods in research pedagogy and practice. And, and then was able to connect in with Bridget and some other um, great colleagues um, around this topic. Love it. So I, I want to help give everyone a, a kind of a foundation here and maybe start off with some definitions. So Bridget, can you briefly define concepts <laughs> like photo, yeah, briefly, right? Uh, photo elicitation, photo voice, visual content analysis, art-based inquiry, digital storytelling. You, you choose 
which which ones you want to share with us. But I, I want people to understand this is really the, uh, a toolbox, an array of, of methods that we can use. Yes, absolutely. And this is exactly what I think people were looking for, is they've heard these terms but didn't necessarily see them played out in the qualitative research books or other research books they had looked at. And I'll just pick up where Carrie left off on the photo elicitation to start. Um, which is a qualitative research method that Carrie used um, in which the interviewer uses photographs to um, that the participants took themselves um, for specific research purposes, usually to evoke information or as Carrie said, feelings um, or memories that explain uh, something specific, which is very distinct, um, but often I think they get conflated with photo voice, which is a form of participatory action research. So researchers working with um, participants um, and it has an emancipatory, um, liberatory um, stance, which I think is just wonderful because we find so much when we look at qualitative research methods that many of them are steeped in white supremacy or hegemony or dominance. And that is really steeped in emancipatory action. Um, and it's often community-based. It encourages folks to serve as experts, so people in the communities are experts about their own lived experience and really document. And then it has some action component. And so that, what are we gonna do about what it is we're documenting and for those people who are steeped in the community to be able to have their own um, solutions to that. And then visual content analysis, um, which is something that I think um, hopefully gets more people to think about the book because we do this all the time in terms of thinking about all the visuals that come into us through Instagram, through our you know Google Photos, through our feeds, through Facebook, and um, just regular TV and regular media advertising. But it's not often that we can focus on what the messages are saying, um, both text and images and what they say about a particular topic. And so, for instance, institutions, kind of social media accounts or websites um, or college view books kind of all use visual imagery to convey something that the campus values. And so to get folks to figure out how do we unpack that and really determine what it is people are trying to communicate. And then art-based inquiry um, adapts the tenets of creative arts. So something we're all familiar with from going through kindergarten and first grade and thinking about arts to now thinking about how art can also be liberatory and emancipatory and think about addressing social research questions through art. Um, and so kind of think about the discussions of poetry or performance or sculpting or painting and coloring or drawing and having folks, um, I think there's been a resurgence on like adult coloring books recently and having folks really think about how they can express um, something that is often marginalized or isolated through their art. And then how can they have a discussion that really unpacks what that um, is saying about the topic. And digital storytelling, Carrie um, probably has more experience in this zone and please jump in Carrie, um, is really tend to consist of digital technology that uses assortment of media. So when we think of things like video clips or soundtracks for music or computer generated graphics um, and narration to construct a narrative that really centers the person's voice. And so um, personal voice becomes the kind of central vehicle for which folks are given the opportunity to tell their own story through a digital, a digital means. And I think hopefully you'll see a through line as my uh, colleague, Dr. John Dugan always says, what's the through line between all these visual methods? Hopefully emancipatory, liberatory action and kind of personal voice is what I think about. 
Harry, anything to add to that? Um, I, I think I think I also think about visual methods in a couple of big buckets. One is sort of participant-generated visual methods, um, and others are sort of um, more artifacts or found or visual content that is that is already. Um, out there that um, is either analyzed by the researcher or sometimes um, you share a photograph with participants and ask them to respond to. And so, so I think about the, both the ways we engage in participant-generated visual methods, um, which I think is, is sort of where Bridget and my work sort of aligns with. And then there's other folks who are doing some of this content analysis or using it, visuals to pr prompt participants regarding responses. So you talk about artifacts and, and Bridget, you mentioned view books and, and social media. I, I wonder if anyone, if you've come across any research that has seen a, a disconnect between what the campus is portraying and how students actually engage your Bolsma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Katie Jackal's work, I think, in the chapter in the book really has students take an assignment where they go out and um, kind of take their their cameras and take pictures and really connect to camp pieces of campus and, and has them analyze kind of what places do you feel like it belonging, a sense of belonging to, and what places do you feel like are off the beaten path that had to take you a while to to track it and get there. And then that, what does that then convey, let's say about a multicultural center on campus and where it's located or a like statue that we have at the University of Maryland of Frederick Douglass and how it is situated and what what is the campus trying to communicate with that? And I think oftentimes, um, you know, the campus may think, oh, this is wonderful. We have a multicultural center. And then the the message that sometimes gets out is, well, it's in the basement around a corner behind, you know, another building. And so it's great that it's there, but it's not certainly central um, to what maybe the campus values. Love it. There's been a couple of people who've done um, visual content analysis on view books and um, like Nana Osakofi, um, she's done a, she's done some, um, there's been some work around sort of looking at how institutions um, portray race and ethnicity through view books and, and the demographic of the institution versus the demographic that are being represented visually within these view books and sort of um, trying to project particular images around belonging, engagement, and diversity. Excellent. So, so, Carrie, I'm gonna gonna throw this one to you. As you look at the use of visual methods for research, for teaching, for practice, what are some of the challenges? I mean, I want to maybe start with some of the benefits and then move to what what some of the challenges are that that uh, discovers along your research here? Sure, I think um, that, you know, we're, we live in a visual world, we're surrounded by visuals. And so are there, there are ways that we can engage in, in different modalities and sense making um, through, through the use of images? I mean, I think about, you know, you know, in the Midwest, it's been, um, we've been experiencing a lot of bad weather lately, to probably say it lightly. Um, and, and, and so I've been narrating my life around my experience with weather and the challenges through, you know, some Instagram posts. And so there's potential ways that we can, we can leverage and use um, these images through what we see students using in their everyday lives. Um, I think that some of the other benefits is that, um, 
there's different um, reflective components when you have when you come into an interview, either when you had to make a decision around bringing a photograph or in some of Bridges' work where she gives time for the participants to draw their experience, a challenge from this past year, they have to sit and think and reflect about what's happening in their lives differently than just immediate response to an open-ended question. I ask, I'm the interviewer, I ask you a question and your job is to respond back. Um, there's some power in it, you know, there's some, um, shifting a power when you ask folks to bring in artifacts, either photographs or journals or or art pieces or have them engage in drawing that allows for some different sense making or time to re thinking about experience. Um, I, I think some of the challenges, um, particularly, um, you know, time, um, it, it's there's different expectations and obligations of of participants when I ask you to bring to um, an interview photographs on a particular topic. Um, I think that there's different pieces around what does it mean when um, around reciprocity or um, whose ownership of the photograph. If, if the photograph was taken for a research purpose, um, you know, it's, I'm using it for my research, but I also do I own that photograph, right? So, I, or am I using it? So, I think there's some pieces around um, some challenges and also around reciprocity and who in ownership and permissions and, and big issues around potential confidentiality. Um, if a participant submits a picture of their face, um, I have some options. I could blur that out but does that change the, the meaning of it? And so there's issues around confidentiality. Um, I think there are workarounds, but I think that there are some real ethical issues that we have to contend with when we're looking at um, images and visuals. Um, and, and, you know, also, you know, images that may not have people, but have institutions. And so, how much do we need to protect institutions? Um, I think those are questions to be asked. Um, and so I think that there is exciting benefits, but also some challenges that we have to think through. And then there's resistance. I have, you know, my students who I've done digital storytelling with, um, they're socialized to participate in class in a particular way. Being a good student means particular things and doing an assignment often is about writing. And so when I ask them to use technology and integrate visuals with content and music and sound and narration, and then closed captioning, because we wanna talk about you know, accessibility, um, that project becomes, I think that's, you know, I mean, the modality and the multi in the literacy around using multiple um, representation of knowledge is exciting, and there's resistance because it's different. And that was a long answer. That was a great answer. <laughs> so, so this for either of you is there science that supports visual learning? And and, and I, I've done quite a few presentations on presentation design, like PowerPoint design. So I remember quoting Richard Meyer, I think he was from UC Santa Barbara, who did lots of psychological studies on, on multimedia presentation. And that if you want students to retain information, like add a strong supporting visual and 
you know, the retention goes from 10% to 65%. I'm totally making up that stat, but <laughs> what is, is there science that supports this? Well, you're pretty close, actually, when you made up the stat, because it uh, it is, I would just to piggyback on what Carrie said, the the benefits of visual is that it um, it's, it's good on its own. And then when combined with a traditional narrative or writing, it exponentially helps students retain and um, which is like, you know, what I think as faculty members, what we all want is not to just talk and have people read, but have people retain things. Um, but it's really how people resorb, absorb, retain and process new information. Um, and the majority of people based on a number of studies that we cite in the book, argue that 65% of the gender population are visual learners. So when we think about the general population, we're reaching 65% who um, that's their common mode. Doesn't mean they don't learn through auditory or kinesthetic, but most folks learn through vision and vision takes up about half of our brain's resources, um, which makes it the single most um, powerful sensory tool that we have for processing and retaining information. Um, and we think about our, if you believe in evolution and think about our evolutionary history, our brain was just wired to look at drawings and look at pictures and make meaning of them. That was some of our first language. And so um, we are rewiring our brains, you know, as we come with new technology and type as opposed to write. Um, but it's still, as I said, the best thing that really sticks to our neurons because of how our brain is wired. Now, Bridget, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I'm, I'm hoping you can expound on, on yeah. how we can use images to explore concepts such as privilege, depression, class, and gender. Well, I wanted to just pick up what I, on what I said the, at the beginning when I was defining these terms about emancipatory, liberatory, um, personal voice, because that is, I think, some of the was most, um, I think, surprising to me, but also just wonderful um, that after we finished the book and Carrie and I got together to write the afterword, um, the last chapter in the book, we looked through everything and every single person had, um, when they talked about whether they use visual methods in research, practice, or teaching, there was this through line of, and it helped me do research that was socially just, that was inclusive. It helped me really dig into people's marginalized identities. People were much more open and willing to share some of their vulnerabilities through that. And so that was something that was, um, like I said, we didn't ask anybody who wrote a chapter that this is a social justice book or it needs to be about privilege or marginalization or inclusion, but without fail, every single um, author, when they were just because they were using visual methods had that um, through line in them. And so for an example, like David Nugent's study of LGBTQ plus individuals used gener generated photos that the participants took themselves. They did campus map drawings and they did other visual methods to understand college success. And so when you think about having students really take ownership about what it means for them to be successful, and it wasn't a bunch of pictures of um, GPA or pictures of an A on a test. Instead, it was um, you know, a relationship that they had um, connected with or a friend that they had made or an achievement that they had learned how to do something. And so that was, I think, really having people take agency is something that's really been transformative in terms of using visual methods. I, I love that you brought up college success. We were doing some strategic planning here at, at UD and the, and the concept of student success came up and the pushback was it's often viewed in terms of graduation or academic success. 
not in terms of how students see their own success. And I remember reading that story in, in the chapter. It's, a, it's something I need to revisit and share with our team. Yeah, I hope that we start to expand concept mm -hmm. success because I think it'll really draw in more, more students mm -hmm. successful in the ways that traditionally are marked, but have them kind of feel better about it, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you brought up thing, things like statues and signage, and and I remember some some uh, very specific stories that that you shared in the book. Can you give some specific examples of how signage, imagery, or or layout can cultivate or diminish the sense of belonging? Mm -hmm. I think that we use visuals all the time on our college campuses, and and they often are under sort of explored or um, that they're designed to be you know communicators of culture, right? Mm -hmm. These images on campus are designed to communicate particular values for the institution. Um, yeah, I used to, um, in one of my courses, I would do a campus art audit and um, at a previous institution. And, and one of the groups went would go to Fisk University, which is an HBCU in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and the art on campus sent incredibly strong messages about the history of Fisk, but also the history of um, education and higher education um, for African-Americans in the United States. And so the art was, um, you know, was very specific. In the library, there were images of, of I think in the early 1900s of, of um, of, of, of students sitting and reading in the, you know, and so there are these images of what what they should be doing in college, those getting educated. Um, I, you know, I think about my own campus where we have banners on multiple buildings um, that says student success starts here with an image of, of students on it and in dis different disciplines and um, representing different majors. And and these are trying to communicate what, what we're trying to expect at our institution. Um, I think that there's also some, you know, messaging and graffiti is one of those and, and how do we allow or don't allow graffiti on campus. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of resurgence around neo-Nazism on campus and, and a lot of that comes through imagery and how we how we address it matters and, and these images aren't neutral. Um, that we are using them to communicate values and belonging and so I think we need to do more to interrogate what are we sending on campus um, and how does that communicate our values um, and promote belonging and inclusion and diversity um, and education. That's, that's, the graffiti is, is a fascinating topic. I remember having a conversation with uh, uh, director of multicultural um, affairs and them saying they wish folks didn't rush to cover up the graffiti right away mm -hmm. so that it became a conversation and dialogue around it. Do you have any thoughts on that? you support that or cover it well, up? We, we got an interesting um, chapter in the book um, around art and art as healing. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going back and forth. It was a, you know, I think a case study true example of mm -hmm. Um, some college Republicans on campus and some maybe more liberal groups on campus going back and forth. And this is around the, the 2016 election. Um, and thinking about, you know, 
leaving it up um, for one educational purpose, but then for two, the harm that it's doing when it's up. Um, and so I, I, you know, I kind of like, instead of maybe a rush to cover it up, a rush, a rush to have a dialogue about it, a rush to kind of bring people to look at it and talk about it. And how could we, how do we as a community want to respond to it? And is this a value of ours? So I, I agree that, you know, we shouldn't just, for better words, whitewash things and, and pretend that they're not there and that everybody on the campus um, believes the same. But at the same time, I think it needs to be addressed in a, in a way that invites people who are facing real harm, um, both physically and emotionally from those images to have a place of healing. Yes. So Carrie, you, you, you brought up some challenges and, and I'm hoping you can, can share some other specific uh, ethical and practical considerations when using digital tools for research. Like you brought up blurring, for instance. What are some other examples? Uh, Sure. So blurring faces is one way that you can mask um, identities. Um, I think, um, you know, one of the things that became really um, a challenge for us was it was the resolution of the image in um, for the book in order to be reprinted. And so um, that that became these technical things around um, you know, just making sure your images are, are high enough resolution. Um, and you need to start with that when you're in the data collection phase. Um, it's, it's harder to make a resolution better, you know, um, if you do you take things at lower. Um, I think the confidentiality, some of it is working with, if for research, working with IRB offices who may have um, less literacy around um, um, what are options around visual methods? Um, and there's there's ways, and many of us, and we have some practical solutions in the in the or advice in the book. Um, I think about permissions. One of the one of the things that we sort of came across is that in Chris Linder's chapter, she talked about um, she did some analysis around. Um, uh, sort of social media activism on um, on sexual violence awareness, um, and one of the one of the images we wanted to use was this image of the student from Columbia carrying the mattress was, and and that became really difficult to track down who owned who owned it to get permission, um, particularly when people are taking photos or want things to go viral, tracking <laughs> back who who owns it or who can give permission to reprint um, became really a challenge. And um, that's how we ended up using sort of several QR codes in the book because we could, because it lived online, we could, we could link people to it online um, and get it and have it still honor sort of where it was. Um, I think that the other thing is helping people. So some so some students are drawn or participants are drawn to using visual methods. I mean, we've had to, uh, my own experience where students wanted to participate because they wanted to express things visually. We've heard that from other people is that um, is the fact that they were excited about thinking about um, being creative. Um, and then there's people who are like, I'm not an artist. 
And most of us, it's not about, I think that's the other big thing is that this is about process. And I'll hear that in the class. They, I'm not an artist. It's not really about an outcome of a masterpiece. It is about the process in which people engage with the information. And so that sometimes takes some education and work with folks around thinking about, um, it's the process of developing something, not necessarily um, the quality at the end. That's funny. When you were t talking about draw drawing um, to describe your experience, I, I have, I think, I have fairly good um, Adobe Creative Suite skills, but I can't draw worth a lick. Like you asked me to draw something, I wanted to do a stick figure, and I'm like, well, how effective would I be if I was asked to do that? So I could feel my own sense of trepidation and at, uh, mm -hmm. my stress level go up as as you might ask me to do something like that. It's a definite vulnerability. So when I asked faculty to draw um, a professional highlight, a professional experience from there, and I left the room and I gave them markers and a you know a nice resolution paper so that we could reproduce it, um, because that's also something to think about for drawing. Those people were immediately like, "Oh, I'm not an artist." I'm, and it's and again, as Carrie said, it wasn't about that. But as soon as I left the room and gave them that time, the left brain kicks in, and I always got different um, things that we talked about in terms of the drawings. And again, whether it was stick figures, whether they actually just wrote words on the page, or some people actually were beautiful um, in terms of their drawing abilities. But it always gave me new information that I wasn't getting just from the face-to-face in-depth individual interview that really changed the direction of our of our interview and i love integrating the qr codes i i, I used to tell folks do you know what no, students are not using qr codes like i don't understand why they would do that but for this book i absolutely took advantage of the qr code <laughs> and love that i could just watch the videos on or whatever you're sending it to me on my phone it really made a richer learning experience for me to to have the multimedia embedded within the book so, we're, oh, good. Yeah. So I, I'd like to, you to each dig down and, and share perhaps your your favorite practical example story of a, that that when someone maybe you or or someone in the book or someone else employed visual methods for research and teaching. Let's start with Carrie. Oh, I was gonna let it <laughs> pass it to Bridget. Um, I think for me, one of one of the projects I did was I had um, I did a study about um, um, LGBT students regarding campus environment, how that mediated their experience, and I asked them to bring photographs that represented concepts of inclusion, inclusion, exclusion, safety, unsafe, and support, lack of support, and then what it meant to be a student at at that institution, um, and it. You know, some of the photos were, you know, I, I got a lot of photos of, of fraternity buildings, um, which, which weren't particularly exciting, at, you know, visually, but it, 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 it provided a context for them to talk about the ways in which Greek life and, and gender, gendered expectations and potential concern around safety mediated how they went about the campus. And so it allowed for some different mapping of space on campus. Um, and then, the, and it also, also allowed them to think about these concepts in particular ways. And so um, I think that there's some ways we can think about environmental assessments or, or campus environments around thinking about space differently. Um, there's an example from um, 
the um, Michigan State using um, heat mapping that when they did their campus climate study, they included a they included a map where allowed people to indicate um, sort of places they felt were included or safe and places that were more um, they felt that either they weren't included or unsafe. And so it allowed and then they could look at the space by different demographics. And so um, and so it provided some visuals of of looking at the space on campus, um, I think in different ways than you can get just from asking about um, what, you know, just the climate surveys are, are important and um, how, it doesn't always tell us how students are moving about campus. How are they avoiding places? How are there particular places that are, um, that they feel more included in? Um, not surprising and with my students or the students in the, in the study I did, you know, they talked about the role of the LGBT center on campus and how that was a place of inclusion and support. Um, and, and then how other spaces weren't as safe. Bridget, you have a story you can share? Um, sure, yeah. I'll, I also think about a teaching story that I think I briefly talked about in chapter five in the book in terms of a photo elicitation project that um, I've been doing for years with a diversity course. And so at the beginning of the year, the first week of school, asked students um, to go, master students to go out and within their everyday experiences, so whether commute to school or their commute to work, wherever they're working or their homes or back on campus to take pictures of what they consider to be privilege, oppression or social justice. And then to write a small paragraph about why. And usually, um, and then we come back to class. The important part about photo elicitation is then to you know, elicit a dialogue and a discussion around it. And so we talk in small groups and large groups about what people took. And it's um, always usually a, a distance. And so people will talk about those people or this thing or that campus or this. Um, and then once we unpack the concepts and do dialogue and reading all throughout the semester, then at the end of the class, I ask them to do it again. And they can either use the same photos that they used the first time, but then talk about them differently, or they can take all, all new photos or a combination of. And what I love and what I always hope for is that students will turn the camera on themselves and they'll say, I represent, you know, oppression in the ways that I am able to get married, you know, for instance, or I'm able to um, have pictures of my kids at work without people um, making assumptions about me and my partner and um, or I represent privileged and they'll take a picture of their passport and talk about um, being a U.S. citizen and what that means, particularly in today's times with immigration issues. Um, or they'll talk about social justice and they'll talk about, you know, an organization that they've become um, aware of. And usually I get to become aware of all of these places that because of through their photos. And so that um, is something that for those of, that Carrie said who are used to writing and they're used to writing papers and they've been, you know, English is their native language and they've um, used it and they've known it from K through 12 through college to get to graduate school and say, take some pictures and think about it. It gives people an opportunity to express their learning in a different way and a more intimate um, what Robert Nash would call kind of scholarly personal narrative way is to take the eye and make that a source of learning as well as whatever you're reading about or whatever you're studying. I love, I'm definitely going to borrow that. Something. <laughs> Great. So I, I'm going to 
take a chance to see if this works. Um, I don't know if you can see this. Mm -hmm. Can you talk again? Because then you're then it gets really big. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was too much. Yeah, so, that's good. So inspired by your book, we were looking at potentially a new student union on on campus. So we took students on a uh, bus road tour and we looked at nine institutions and we gave Ooh. them cameras. So student mm. leaders from different areas and we gave them cameras and they came back with like 9,000, not 9,000, 2,000 <laughs> photos. Um, and it was fascinating to see what different photos, what different student leaders from different areas chose to photograph over the course of those tours. So we got together and we chose 80 of those photos and we put them in in a big way in these kind of art museum displays on our on our main walls and our student centers and students can get little quarter inch dots and then they place them on the oh, wow. resonated with them and and it is giving us such great data about what students want and what they like and more importantly we have the students who went on the tours and we have staff there to engage students in dialogue mm -hmm. around it so the visual has been such a powerful uh, spark to create dialogue about what a, a student center could be and, and how it could, uh, you know, ser better serve the students on our campus. So thank you for, you, yeah. you got us on that path using visuals for that. So. That's an amazing yeah, idea. That's a great example. Yeah. yeah. And staff, and it sounds like staff and students and hopefully faculty are all in dialogue, which often doesn't mm -hmm campus issues they are they are and and the comment was why didn't someone do this before and and i think people are excited about students having a voice right they we the fact that we value their input and we want to hear from them uh i think it's a very different way than just probably saying we're going to have a meeting tonight mm -hmm. come yeah. and talk about the student center it's like oh am i going to show up for that but the visual sounds <laughs> like draw people in Mm -hmm. And it feels more interactive, right, than saying, okay, do you want a coffee shop in the new student union? Do you right. want, like, a list of things where it's some of the intangible pieces that are, that is about, right, belonging. I mean, you want people to feel included in the student center. So it's not just about the coffee shop. It's about what that may feel like, look like, be like to be yeah. in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the photo tells such a better story than... The, wor the words in this instance, you're exactly mm -hmm. right. So I, I wanna take a moment and, and, and ask you to dream a little bit here. So <laughs> how might each of you imagine future technology, perhaps technology that hasn't yet been invented or created being used for visual learning and research? So I'm gonna um, <laughs> take a picture out of my out of my parent book um, and suppose, cause that's, it's a big learner for me. I learned so much being a parent. I have an eight-year-old and 11-year-old. So when I saw this question, I was thinking about um, the apps and the ways that my kids use technology. And so my dream would be that future technology would have a representation of how we all show up now, currently, <laughs> in the 21st century. Because, for instance, my daughter found an app that storyboard that allows her to write her own story and she gets mm. illustrated with the pictures, but she has to choose the pictures that the app has. And so when I'm looking at the story, I'm like, so did the app, my daughter is, she looks like a mini version of me. So <laughs> beautiful brown skin. And I'm like, so all these pictures, they have white kids in them. And she's like, well, those mm. are options to choose from 
how to illustrate my story. And so in the future, I think I would love to be able for her to have a range of options or for her to draw her own, for instance, or pull from, you know, appropriate places on the internet to, I can understand why people don't just want kids going on the internet and pulling pictures down, but, but it just seems like, and then the same with my, with my son who, as we were talking about before, is a big gamer and is doing Fortnite and all these other games. And when I look at both the representation of women, when I look at the representation of how they're um, attired, how they're dressed, when I look at the lack of diversity and gender diversity um, and gender identity, it's just, it feels like we should be there, but I guess that's a dream for the future because it doesn't look like um, technology is necessarily keeping up with um, who's using it. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, yeah, I've also, I've got uh, twin eight-year-old boys and an 11-year-old boy and they're in the same stage and um, I've not used Fortnite a whole lot, but as you <laughs> talk about it, you're, you're exactly right. I think we need to do a better job. All right, Carrie. What's your big idea? Oh, I, um, <laughs> I, you know, I struggle a little on this because I don't think I, I don't think I got into this because of the technology piece. Um, but I've also been really, you know, becoming more interested in the ways in which we can um, share and narrate through images and the ways we use sort of apps or social media to do such. Um, I think the other is so I think that there's a piece around how do we engage in technology. Um, I know that, you know, there, um, I'm part of it. My the my department is counseling adult and higher ed, and so there was some talking about sort of these virtual realities where people could be avatars and and have virtual counselors and sort of the non-judgmental piece of counseling that can happen in these sort of virtual spaces through avatars, um, on one hand, I think provides new ways of thinking about people who may, and, and that may have applica applications for student affairs around students, student services and advising, particularly this piece that we're talking about, the non-judgmental part, right? The the fear of that I, I don't know something or I'm, I'm gonna look stupid or people aren't gonna, um, you know, judge me a particular way, I think could be really powerful and at the same time, I find it really concerning. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there may be a piece around um, wanting people to still have, um, be able to interact with folks in the re in, in the real world. But that doesn't mean that they can. I, and so I struggle around it. We, um, around what is the role on some of this technology. And for me, I also don't want people thinking that visual methods is all about fancy technology. I think some of the most meaningful ways we can have people think about their experiences can be incredibly low tech with a piece of paper and crayons. Um, and so um, I think there's cool things that we can do with technology and sort of the availability of the camera phone. I mean, if we just think about the ways that we take photos with a camera phone is different than 10 years ago or even five years ago. Um, so it's allowed for new possibilities. I also don't want that to overshadow that um, not everybody has access. Yeah. I, I, uh, you, when you start talking about virtual reality, I, I reminded me of Second Life. Do you remember Second mm -hmm. Life? 
Yeah, wondered what happened to that uh, platform. I, 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 it was one of those things. I heard of people doing it. I didn't really. I wasn't. I'm not. I'm not quite that <laughs> um, into it. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it's been really sort of thinking about what does that mean, and what are ethical considerations when we think about sort of virtual using avatars and virtual reality to provide counseling or services or student affairs and interact with people you know is there is is there issues and and it probably like everything right like there's ethical ways to do it in ways that can be beneficial in ways that can be particular particularly problematic yeah so i i there was a, a chapter uh, written by a, a friend of mine, Paul mm. Eaton, in your book. And mm -hmm. Paul is always pushing, in my view, pushing the edge in, in what he does uh, in, in practice and teaching. And he outlines in his leadership in higher education, mm -hmm. on, he's got an online course and uses a rhizomatic, maybe I'm not pronouncing that right, approach. Rhizomatic, yeah, I believe that's how it's pronounced. So can you explain that concept and, and perhaps share some highlights, takeaways from that chapter? Yes, I, I, I um, so, so Paul in this chapter talks about taking a rhizomatic approach to an online education leadership course. And, and there's a great little three minute, if you just Google three minute theory, rhizomatic, um, it's R-H-I-Z-O-M-A-T-I-C. Um, it, it, it gives a little explanation, but sort of simply, it is an approach to learning that doesn't take a beginning or an end. It has a non-linear. So, so learners can enter into the content in any way they want. And so, and it's true, um, and it sort of fractures linear approaches to learning, and it really tries to highlight the interconnectedness and interdependence of ideas. And so, particularly in a leadership course, um, I think some of the linear ways is, right, you start with sort of uh, theories about um, leadership, what might be different approaches and then skills, et cetera. Um, there's a linear progression. And so he challenges that through a, a approach that allowed students to, that there was a content bank of topics that in readings that that students had to, that covered different topics around leadership. And then there was an assignment bank and students had to engage in both helping create content for the course um, and at the same time choose assignments to represent materials that they want that week. And there wasn't a starting point. So you didn't have to start with history of leadership. You could start with um, critical approaches to leadership. Um, and so it, it's, it challenges and the idea is it allows folks to think about interconnectedness of information and materials, which in an online learning environment can be really exciting way to approach. Um, um, learning um, and education. Um, and in a face-to-face -face course, that might be a little more challenging, right? Um, as that you sort of, students need to know what the topic of the week is to show up to class to, to discuss. But in an online format, there, there might be ways that we can challenge linear approaches to 
content delivery and engagement. Um, he also talks a lot about the use of how do we use visuals in um, generating content and engagement in the class in different ways online than um, than you do in a face-to-face -face class, right? Um, there's, and I think that's the thing is that there's opportunities that potentially are different in online classrooms, um, but then there's limitations, right? So how do we use the medium to be um, pushing thinking around um, content engagement? Um, I'm, I, I pulled, I will say, I borrowed some of his, his um, ideas for an online class I'm teaching right now on a seminar in community colleges, and um, particularly the quotograph where students had to choose a quote from their reading, pair it with an image, and then did a little description about why they chose the quote and why they chose the image. Um, in, in a little like sort of reflection. And the students have posted about how much they've loved this assignment, how interesting it was. And most of them did it on a book on big data and data analytics. So um, not a book you would think is like, you know, quotable, <laughs> quotable but, but they pulled out some really good quotes, like one quote, and I might be getting it wrong, but it was something about, you know, institutions are data rich, but insight poor. And so they had this quote with the image and, Right? Isn't that like that's provocative because it's true. <laughs> uh, I think that that could probably apply some some individuals I know as well. Right. Data rich, insight poor. Right. <laughs> I might be off on the quote, but it was something like that. <laughs> if not, you it. should trademark it. It's good. Right. Yeah. So so Bridget, I I read that faculty sometimes faculty in in your book. Um, see the use of visuals as somewhat cynically and, and as a ploy to add relevance or interest to a course. How would you respond to faculty who share that view? Um, I would be skeptical of it. I think I would try to, I'm a dialogue person, so I would try to drill down to what it is they really thought because I think that it's almost like student affairs and, and academic affairs or qualitative research and quantitative research and the fact that there's an assumption sometimes that it lacks rigor, that it's not as intellectual, engaging, that if you can't, you know, measure it with a big T, you know, survey or some high level, you know, statistical analysis that it's not um, as, in, as important. And like I tell a story, um, Carrie's heard this story where I'm doing another uh, book on the drawings that the women faculty did and I um, brought it to a publisher and explained mm -hmm talk about how these women faculty, you know, um, did drawings about their highlights and challenges for the, each year of the longitudinal study. And this woman um, from the publishing company just looked at me and said, you know, we don't do picture books. And <laughs> the way she said it was as if I was telling, you know, Dick and Jane, you know, Dick and Jane go down the hill and here's a picture of two kids kicking a ball and, and that it had no rigor, that it had no intellectual, um, mm -hmm. And so I think it, I, I, you know, take my my balls and go somewhere else. You know, go to another publisher who will who will look at that. But I just think that I would just drill down on that. And I attribute mostly to how we're socialized around valuing numbers, around how we're socialized um, lesser still to valuing words and people's voices. And then how are we how are we socialized to to visuals? Um, it's something that. 
we associate with maybe advertising and something that is for profit and something that is a flash in the pan and it's and it's almost manipulative, right? So when you think about people being cynical about it, um, I think that's where our socialization comes from and that's where we need to break down some of those assumptions. So we are nearing the end of our time here. I want to be respectful of your, your time. I, I'm hoping you can close by sharing some additional resources, maybe some websites, okay. videos. Can't really share a QR code, but <laughs> other, other, other tips that might help viewers continue to explore and learn about these issues. Well, I would definitely plug um, Dr. Amanda Latz's book on photo voice that came out after ours, and she's in the, in the book as a chapter author, but it's just another mm -hmm for people who want to go deeper into that particular um, visual method. Mm -hmm. There's also going to be a photo vo voice workshop at Ball State. Um, um, uh, Dr. Latz is organizing it in, on June 22nd. Um, we also have uh, Bridget, myself, as well as um, Amanda Latz, Katie Branch, um, Kristen McCain, and Chris Linder have a chapter in um, the review of an uh, article in the review of higher ed about um, the case for participant-generated visual methods and, and how that can enhance um, knowing. Um, and um, there's a lot of really good online resources. If you Google 30 sites and apps for digital storytelling, it brings up a sort of a, a bank of resources. Um, I, it would be remiss if I didn't sort of say something about our book as a resource for folks. Um, and lastly, I, I, if you're interested in our doing um, um, visual methods or um, other thinking about other arts-based research, um, this year for this upcoming ASH conference, um, there's a new session type um, that is performance, visual, and digital scholarship. And it's designed to be about um, representation of information and knowledge in different, um, um, you know, um, using different approaches. So an exhibition or a video or performance or vi visuals, um, you can sort of talk about how you want to represent the knowledge. And it's designed to not be, it's, it's, this session is for folks um, not to write a not to present a paper or a poster or um, a symposium, but to actually do the type of display or a performance on knowledge. So if, if you're doing this work, um, I really encourage you to think about submitting it and submitting a proposal to ASH this year for the performance visual and digital scholarship session. I love it. I, I really love love this. I love the book. I love the, the dialogue that we've had. I think we are just getting started down down this path. Mm -hmm. I maybe you're already working on this. I would love to see this be like a pre-conference institute at one of the national associations next year if it's not if you're not in, in the works to do it already. I think it would get uh, a lot of interest from folks. Uh, before I, I moved over to, to University of Delaware, our programming board at my previous institution did a photo voice project mm. with students and it was fantastic. Um, lots of great insights, mm -hmm. lots of great en engagement and it was program board related, something you might not think about in, ter yeah. in terms of research. So mm -hmm. yeah, so please do something. I, I, wanna, I, would, I would spend <laughs> I look at the pre-conference institution offerings and I'm like, oh, I wish there was something on this. It would be fantastic. Oh, thank you for that. 
So, so thank you for taking the time. I know you're bo both busy folks at the, at the beginning of the semester at, at your respective schools. Uh, I look forward to seeing you perhaps at, at NASPA in LA in a few weeks. I will, I will be back next month with an episode on the topic of the science of sleep and mm. how it relates to our work with students and also how it relates to our own personal well-being. And I'm guessing both of you can relate to that topic. You can receive reminders about this and other great shows by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also browse the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to our iTunes podcast. I'm Tony Duty. Thanks for watching, everyone. I hope you make it a great week, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care.